All right, everyone. Um, I hope that that time of worship and praise um, was comforting to you and hopeful. Again, I think as we watch the news, I think for everybody, regardless of your political affiliation or, or your background, whatever it is, I think watching the news generates negative emotions. I think, I think most of us probably have experienced that. Maybe you would disagree. I'd be interested to hear you. But I, I think one thing people have in common, even that are on different sides of, of current events, is that watching the news tends to generate negative feelings, negative uh, emotions, anger, fear. I, I see both of those as, as negative emotions. And so I think it's so important for us uh, to be in God's word, that our minds are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, and also singing and praise that, um, you know, we, we're not to be led by our emotions, but we are emotional beings. We have emotions, and God has given us emotions. So emotions are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves. They can be misleading at times. They can go in a, a wrong direction that maybe God wants to take us, um, but we would be we would not be wise if we ignored our emotional condition, and we would not be wise if we were ignorant of the fact that spending any significant amount of time watching the news generates negative feelings. And again, I'm not saying don't do it. I think we should all be aware of what's going on. But I would also just say that needs to be balanced by uh, singing and praising the Lord. And I know even for me, just in that a brief window of worship for about 15 minutes, um, I can already feel hope rising. Uh, that hope is rising when we're praising Jesus, when we're remembering who he is, that he's defeated the powers of sin and death, that he's coming again, and he's going to raise all those who have died again to life, to be with him forever. And that's hopeful. We know how the story ends. We don't know how this chapter is going to end. That we don't know, but we do know how the book ends. We know how the ultimate story ends. And so I hope that that was a time of just experiencing the joy and hope and peace of the Lord that is possible for God's people. I think you and I need more and more of that. We know that Hebrews 10 says, and do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves as is the habit of some, but gather together more and more as you see the last day approaching. And friends, I think you can see the wisdom in that passage in Hebrews 10, that as the world is, is going chaotic and it's, it's pushing in on you, it, it is going to try to capture you. And I think it's so important that you and I are engaging with the Lord and that we are allowing him to be the primary one who shapes our hearts and our minds. Can I get an amen to that? All right. So um, with all that's been going on, um, we haven't been doing the, the normal things uh, every meeting. I've, I've been just trying to pray and seek the Lord. Um, totally open to continuing our study in Exodus on Sunday. Totally open to continuing Galatians on Wednesday. Yet at the same time, I felt that I should not be rigid about that. And that um, I wanted to be open to the Lord and open to the Holy Spirit. And open to address things as, as they arise. And, and again, not doing so in a reactionary way, but thoughtfully and prayerfully seeking God, seeking God's word, seeking wise counsel, and then coming before you. So for those of you that missed last Wednesday's message, I think that was an important message. Um, we put our study of Galatians on hold, and we talked about the Christian response to racism the Christian response to racism. 
Uh, I said that, again, there's all kinds of details that could be dived into. Um, I think the main issue, too, is narratives. Who do you believe? Whose story uh, do you believe? Because it's not just you know bits and facts, although there's a plethora uh, of those. But whose narrative do you believe? And so I felt it important not to dive into so many of those things where I, I honestly cannot be sure and I don't have biblical authority to do that. But two key things that, that are coming up. Uh, sort of in everybody's mind, are the topic of racism and violence, racism and violence. And so um, on Wednesday night, last Wednesday night, I addressed what is the Christian response to racism. Before people just react one way or the other, it's important to go back and see what God's word has to say about it. So last Wednesday, I talked about what is the Christian response to racism. If you missed that, I think that's an important message to go back and watch. Uh, this Wednesday night, I will be addressing the issue of violence, which is actually, interestingly, it's kind of a complex um, idea. You you think violence, well, that's always wrong. Well, it's, it's not always wrong, but, it, but it's often wrong. What do you mean? It's often, but not always. What's going on? So we'll talk a little bit about what is the Christian or biblical view of violence or, or use of force. Um, it, it is a little bit of a complex topic, so we'll be addressing that Wednesday. Uh, now, this morning we were going through the book of Exodus, but again, I really was praying and the Lord put a theme uh, on my heart and he gave me a text. And that theme is a house united, a house united, the theme of unity. And our text this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 10 through 18. We'll go ahead and read the passage aloud. We will pray and then we will get into the study of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 1 10 through 18. This is God's Word. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same. Thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in an, in an hour of need. Lord, I believe that just as yesterday we celebrated 
the anniversary of that great historical event we call D-Day, when the Allied forces battled the clearly evil forces of the Nazi regime and landed on the beaches of Normandy. And Lord, I, I don't find it ironic that in this moment we are in another kind of D-Day, a great world war, a battle, but it is one for the human heart, a one for the mind. And Lord, I just pray that you would show us who you are, that we would align ourselves with you, that we would not be like so many seeking to divide up Christ so that he appears to be on their side but rather we would be willing to surrender and give up whatever we're holding on to in order to be with Christ. So Lord, I just plead right now for the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to create unity amongst the churches. You would create unity in our body of believers that we would be united together as one. There would be no divisions. There would be no gossip. There would be no slander. There would be no evil speaking. There would be no ill will towards people. Instead, there would be peace, love, patience, a desire to understand. Lord, I look out and I see Christians being divided amongst themselves, churches being divided, and certainly the world around us in the political sphere extremely divided to the point of polarization. Lord, I believe that unity begins at the household of God. It does not begin out on the streets. It does not begin in Congress or the White House or anywhere else. It begins in the church because in Christ we are united. It is not something we try to achieve. It's something we've been given, but too often give away for something else. Lord, I pray you would speak through my words this morning. I pray that you would sanctify my speech. You would sanctify my heart and my mind so that I can rightly divide the word of truth and speak your word and your heart into this cultural moment. I pray now for a blessing over all my brothers and sisters who are listening. Would you please give them a soft heart, but a strong mind. Lord, I believe that we are not meant to harden our hearts to you in this moment, whether out of anger or fear. We are meant to have soft hearts pliable by your Holy Spirit. But we are not meant to be weak-minded. We are not meant to simply follow what the world says and get caught up in all the division out there. Lord, I pray we would have strong minds built up in the capital T truth of Jesus Christ. We pray now for a blessing over this study. May it build up your body towards unity, and may you use us to be the voices of reason, hope, and love in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. So, like many of you, I've been following the news. I've been following what's going on, and it just seems like the division, the polarization, it's all over the place. Again, it's we've seen it in the streets. We've seen it between political parties. That's bad enough, but I think what's really hit home for me is starting to see the division happening in churches, in the lives of people I know and I care about and I love, divided amongst each other. I don't mean like I love this person and this person I don't know or don't love. There are No, I mean different groups and different people I love 
and they're beginning to war and fight against one another. Again, even family members, uh, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, wives and children, just divided against one another. And friends, I can tell you that this is the work of Satan. Satan's strategy has been the same from the beginning. It's one that the great generals of history know to use because it works. You know what it is. It's the strategy called divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. And that is exactly what is happening. And we are starting to see it hit churches, Christian churches that should be united with a unity deeper than any kind of political unity or ethnic unity or gender unity or class unity or anything else. And yet believers who are supposedly united in the triune God who is one in three, three in one, are beginning to give it away, to sell it for some knockoff version in the street that the world is selling and friends we should not buy. I even woke up this morning and I I looked at the news, couldn't help myself as I was reviewing my notes and praying over them. I saw that there's a joint poll done by NBC and the Wall Street Journal, and I don't think we need a poll to tell us this, but 80% of those polled said the country is out of control. 80% of the country says the country is out of control. Again, I think that only affirms what most of us know to be true. The United States is out of control. I can't speak necessarily for other countries, so for brothers and sisters joining us from outside the United States, we would love to hear from you wherever you are. It's so important that we don't just, you know, from our American situation, read on to you what we think is going on in your country. Uh, As brothers and sisters in Christ, we would absolutely love and cherish your wisdom and your insight from how things are in your country. And I believe that benefits us in the United States, because sometimes Americans across the board, political and conservative, have a way of only seeing the world through an American lens. However things are here, well, that must be how it is over there, or it's how it ought to be. And that's actually just not the case. And so we, we value your input. We're thankful for you, for our international brothers and sisters. And so I look forward to hearing from you. However, with that said, acknowledging we need to be humble in our outlook, I think we can say certain things about what is going on. And I think certainly we can say that the division is sharpening, the polarization is deepening, and there is going to be more chaos in the future unless something changes. That's what I believe. And so for me, again, as many of us are are tempted to jump out into the, the world situation, and I believe there's always a role for the church, we're salt and light, but one of the things I think needs to happen is when the church begins to move out into the world to act within it, and it finds that in so doing, it is dividing against itself, we need to pause. We need to pause and take a step back and remind ourselves of who we are. We need to remind ourselves about what is most important. We need to remind ourselves of eternity. We need to remind ourselves of the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to remind ourselves about the Word of God. And we need to remember that in Christ we are one. And that that unity in the Spirit is, and therefore should be acknowledged, as deeper than any worldly tie. Friends, this is no new modern invention that I'm coming with and imposing my view on the text. 
Is this not, you judge, is this not what Jesus meant when he said, unless you forsake father, mother, sister, brothers, wife, children, yes, your own life also, you're not worthy of me. That's exactly what he was saying. And this is not a New Testament thing. This has always been the call of God. The call of God to Abraham was, Abraham, leave your country and leave your family and go to a land I will show you. I am beginning new with you. This is what God has been doing. And so I believe we need to come back to God's word. I believe that unity in this moment, this is my belief, I believe that unity in this moment is of the utmost importance and that anything that gets in the way, anything that divides the unity, abandons the unity, minimizes the unity, or remains ignorant of the unity is not of the Lord. And so I chose 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, because it's one of the most beautiful passages on unity, most powerful passages on unity in the New Testament. And so what I want to do, friends, is I want to walk with you through this text. I want to talk about what was happening, because it is important that we don't just shove our current events on the Bible. I know it's, it's perfectly normal and tempting to do that, and rightly we intuit that the Bible relates, that it's relevant to our situation. But we must nevertheless make sure that we don't impose on the Bible, on what God is saying, something we want to hear rather than what God has said. And so we'll be talking about what was happening when Paul penned this letter and spoke of division and unity. But we will make connection, we will make application between what Paul said through the Spirit and the authority of Jesus Christ and how that does or might relate to our situation today. So let's begin by looking at verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly called together, joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, interestingly, you wouldn't necessarily pick this up in this passage alone, but if you do a book study of Corinthians, you find out that Paul uses the word brethren, brothers, more here than any other New Testament book. In fact, by far, he uses it about 36 times. 36 times, Paul says, brothers, 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 brothers. There's a reason for that. There's a reason, because just like at Corinth, we forget we are brothers, sisters. If we are in Christ, that is not just a term we use to talk about people from our social group, our ethnic group, our, our gender, our class, our profession, whatever it is. That's normal language to use. We're not saying that's wrong language to use somewhere else, but we're saying it is not only true in the household of faith. It is true at a deeper level. And so Paul already begins with something he's going to do over and over and over and over. And he's going to call these people who are divided outwardly and, and even fighting and hostile perhaps at times, he's going to remind them, your family. And your family at a lever deeper than biology. 
You are family at a level that is so deep. When your body dies, and it is your body that is associated with all these sociological categories, when your body dies, the part about you, the soul, continues and you are in body mind and soul a christian you belong to god you are of the household of faith it is more true of who you are than anything else and so he begins now i plead with you brothers and paul is doing this this is heartfelt Paul is not doing this because he looked out onto the news and saw that politics weren't going the way he wanted, and so he's going to use the Bible and religion to try to get people where he wanted society to go. No. Paul says, I plead with you, brothers, because he loves the brethren. He loves the family of God. He loves Christians. He loves every single kind. He doesn't just like this kind or that kind or, or those over there. He loves all believers. Because Christ loves all believers. And there's only one family of God. There's only one universal church. And so he says, I plead with you. I plead with you from the heart. And it's not about all this other stuff. It is about us being brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I plead with you. And notice what he says. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes Paul will ask a request mildly. He'll just kind of, I wish you would do this. I'd like it if you did this. Paul does not do that here. He is emphatic. And he does so by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember in the Bible, a name means more than the, the word name means to us today. The idea of name spoke of identity and authority. Remember that. When it says that when you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, it speaks of identity and authority. Identity and authority. By the identity of who Jesus is, the Son of the only living God, that his authority is over all flesh, and that we are all one in him. He's Lord of the church. He is the King of the universe. King Jesus and he is saying, by that authority, I summon you to do the following things. He says, speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now it says, let there be no divisions among you. The word divisions in Greek is schisma. Schisma is defined as the condition resulting from splitting or tearing, such as the tearing of a garment or a net. So it is a tearing away of something that is not meant to be torn. That is what is happening. We'll get a little bit, we'll get more into what exactly was going on so you, you understand what is division for Paul. But what we have to understand is Paul looks at this as a tearing, a tearing away. This is not good. And then he says, but that you may be perfectly joined together. And that Greek word is katartidzo. And katartidzo means to mend or to restore to original condition. 
So this word is the remedy for the other word. This is the remedy for division, being joined together. Whereas you're being torn apart, you are allowing things to tear you apart. You're allowing things in the world and, and sinful desires within yourself and the lack of your sanctification to become an occasion for tearing away. And Paul says, no, but we need to work now, now effort, effort and time and thought must now be spent on mending together the tearing that is taking place. So he says that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, again, that we know what same mind means, but what does he mean by judgment? The Greek word is genome. It's defined as that which is purposed or intended. Purpose, intention, mindset, a viewpoint or way of thinking about a matter, an opinion, a judgment, a way of thinking, the act of expressing agreement with a body of data or approval. See, one of the things that's happening right now, and I think in some ways this is harder than ever because of the internet, we have more information at our fingertips, literally, than any people group in the history of the world. Now, I see that generally as a good thing. I'm generally thankful that there's all this information out there. But there's a problem. Not all information is of equal quality. Not all information is of equal value. And so how do we handle this? So now with the wealth of information at our fingertips, that means Christians at the church can all start Googling this, Googling that. I'm going to look here. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to do this. And all those things can be completely different, like night and day. You could spend all day, every day, reading some website that nobody else in the church does, and then everybody else is doing it, and they're doing that. And then, next, and then if you make that like your main thing, this is my way of life, this is my philosophy, this is the deepest conviction I have, you will divide the church. So it's so important that when we are expressing who we are as Christians, that we do so in a way that is agreed upon. That there is a unity to our judgment. Now, again, I'm going to talk about this later. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we can't have different opinions. You're going to have a different opinion. I, I can all but guarantee that. But what, where we need to be is, is recognizing what's an opinion and what is a doctrine. What is something that is just your personal thing and you feel led to do this versus something this is what all Christians should or must do. Those are big differences. And sometimes people don't know the difference. They don't know the difference between a personal conviction, feeling, or opinion, and that which should and must represent the body of all believers. Those are often not the same thing. So we must be careful. So verse 11. So he says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's house, that there are contentions among you. So we're pretty sure that Chloe is actually not a Corinthian. We think she might be from Ephesus. The reason we think that is when Paul later names those who delivered the, a letter that he's bringing to Corinth, who are from the church, Chloe is not named among them which seems strange. You would think if she was of Corinth, that would be, uh, her name would be in there. 
So some people speculate that perhaps she was at Ephesus. In any case, Paul does not hear about their divisions directly from them. He has to hear from Chloe. Notice that. And we know, as you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, you'll find out the Corinthians had written Paul a letter. We know this because Paul says, you wrote to me in your letter, da-da-da-da-da-da, and this is my answer. But notice, he had to hear from Chloe. Sometimes when there's divisions in the church, Christians don't even think it noteworthy. That, that's what blows my mind. Many Christians can live through division, not even uh, making the observation that it's happening. They can be completely oblivious to division right under their noses. Or for again, for some Christians, the division is good because they've now majored on something other than the gospel, something other than Christ himself. And so therefore, it is worth dividing over. So the Corinthians did not tell Paul about this particular situation, the division. The fact that he speaks of it first, of all the problems the Corinthians have, including sexual sin. Sexual sin is an issue and a problem, but apparently it wasn't number one for Paul. Paul feels like we can't even deal with sexual sin if the church is divided. And I believe that the reason he addresses division first, the reason it's the main theme of the first three chapters is because without unity, the church cannot properly bear witness to the truth in all the other areas. We have to be united. People have to look at the Christian church and say, hey, since they stand together on this, this must be true. When churches are divided left and right over every possible thing they can, people, their heads are spinning and they're like, I don't know who to believe. I give up on all of you. Or I'll just pick the one I like. It's not the one that God says, but since there's a million opinions and you preach it all from the pulpit, I'll just go to the one that I'm already personally attracted to. And who knows whether that's the Holy Spirit or my sin nature working in me. So Paul has to hear about the divisions from Chloe's house. We need to make sure that we are not like the Corinthians who thought division was not something worth addressing. Division is a huge problem and there's sin underneath it. Always, Paul would say. I'll show you this later and we must address it. So he says, for it has been declared to me. Now that word declare is delao. And delao means to make some matter known that was unknown or not communicated previously to reveal and make clear. Making clear a situation, making clear an issue is so important. And so the first step in addressing divisions is to reaffirm and maintain the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's step one. It's not run out and, and react emotionally or just regurgitate or whatever somebody else is saying. Step one is step back and make sure we are centered in Jesus. We are grounded in Jesus. We are grounded in the authority of the Bible. We are grounded in the gospel. And we're not moving from the gospel for anything. As Charles Spurgeon once said, I place one foot at the base of the cross and I will stretch my other foot as far as it'll go to reach the lost, but I will never move my first foot from the cross. 
I believe that is where we start. Step one, reaffirm the centrality of the gospel message and the truth of God's word, the Bible. The only inspired, infallible, inerrant narrative in our world in this moment is the Bible. The Bible's narrative. All other narratives are finite. They miss this, they miss that, and sometimes they're straight up corrupt and wrong. So the Bible's narrative that is perfect, we come back to it, we affirm it. But step two, Christians don't disengage completely and have nothing to do with the world. Of course not. But step two is making sure we have a clear understanding of the issue from various perspectives. So having reaffirmed what matters most, it's Jesus. It's the gospel of God who saves sinners from their sins, who doesn't just conform man outwardly by force, but inwardly by the Spirit through a changing of the heart. We reaffirm that is the solution ultimately for mankind. But we are going to act in the world. We are a part of it. We are embodied creatures. We live in the world. We're dual citizens, citizens of heaven and citizens of the United States or whatever country you are a part of. We are dual citizens, so we are going to engage. But after having doing step one, we want to make sure before we react and, and do a long rant on Facebook or send out an angry email or whatever, let us make sure we have understanding. Let us make sure that we understand various perspectives. You don't just grab the one you like. The confirmation bias on the internet is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Uh, I've even read that logarithms on social media are designed to kind of show you what you already believe. Because again, it's like a conservative doesn't want to, doesn't want to read liberal stuff, so uh, it'll filter it out. A liberal doesn't want to read what conservatives are saying, so it kind of filters it out. It's, that's a problem. And I think all Christians should be like, hey, we, we, want, we want that change. We want that fixed. It's not good to simply confirm people's biases. We want to be people who are reasonable. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. We need to be reasonable people. It is what makes us different than the animals functionally. If we just go by our feelings and our drives and our appetites and our impulses, then we are just like the beasts. We are called to reason, to use our minds, to engage, to think deeply and critically about all this information that is coming our way. But unfortunately, it appears that critical thinking in our age is in short supply. In fact, studies, empirical studies have been done that confirm this to be the case. In the internet age, there is more and more an absence of critical judgment, less and less a desire for absolute truth, and more and more simply the affirmation of what people already want to believe. In fact, there was a there was an advertisement from IBM. It was a real advertisement. It's, it's a joke, but it's tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's serious. Listen to this. An IBM advertisement joked, what's the difference between a little kid with a website and a major corporation with one? Nothing. That's the problem. That was the advertisement. What is the difference between a little kid with a website and a major corporation? Nothing. That's the problem. 
People are more and more uncritical. They simply drink the Kool-Aid, repeat what someone has told them, and they're not willing to really think through the issues. They're feeling their way through it. That is a problem, my friends. I don't even have to go into issues because this is fundamentally the problem underneath the issues. We can't have a meaningful discussion about the issues when people are ill-equipped to have discussions of any kind. We need to get back to being reasonable. And that means as Christians reaffirming the centrality of the gospel, biblical truth, the biblical narrative. Secondly, let us do our due diligence to make sure we have heard what other people are saying and we are critically assessing it. That word contentions, he said there's contentions among you in verse 11, is the Greek word eris. Eris means engagement in rivalry especially with reference to positions taken in a matter, strife, discord, contention. So positions taken in a matter. So it's the idea of a Christians in Christ. Hopefully at first they acknowledge what is deepest and what is most important about me is not everything else in the world. It is Jesus. And that's who I am. And that's who my people are, the household of faith. But then a matter comes up. You live in the world. You live in a context. You live in, in history. And so something happens. And then, and then you take a position on that matter. And then what happens is your allegiance begins to shift from Jesus to this issue. It's not to say the issue doesn't matter. Sometimes people divide over issues that honestly, it's not really an issue. Other times, oh no, it's extremely significant. But I don't care how extremely significant you think it is, nothing replaces the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, be very careful about the way in which you take a position on a matter in such a way that it creates division in the church. Paul says, be warned. Now, lest some of you think this is not a big deal, this is like, oh, you shouldn't do it, but it's actually okay if you do. Friends, it's sin. It is actually sin to do this. The same word eris, translated contentions in the New King James, is the same word used in the catalog of sin recorded in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Let me read that to you. This is Paul. Now the works of the flesh, that's the sin nature, are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, Hatred, here's our word for today, contentions, it's sin, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, contentions where you and I take a position on a matter that divides the unity we have in Christ is sin. It is not simply something we can chalk up to a less than ideal circumstance. Oh, we're just human. For Paul, it's the first thing that needs to be addressed in the church. Is the church united? Is Christ being mutilated? Is he being chopped into pieces? Our, our brothers and sisters in Christ less one than non-believers who don't have the spirit in the world. If so, there's a very, very serious sin at work in our midst. Verses 12 and 13 we'll take together. 
Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So we're starting to see what Paul means. People in the church, rather than making the core of their identity to be the gospel message, which unites all believers, they were beginning to divide up and say, I am of this group. And someone would respond, I am of that group. It's the idea of, once again, the foot you put forward is no longer Christ. It is something else. Now, notice this. Before we make application, this is very, very important. There's a difference here. I can say a couple of things about what we... There's a lot we don't know about what exactly the details are here in the situation of Corinth, but there's a couple things we do know. First of all, Paul doesn't necessarily get into the issues they're arguing about at all. If you read, and I urge you, read the rest of 1 Corinthians, what is funny is Paul doesn't get into the exact body of teaching they were talking about, which to some of us is quite strange. Particularly, it'll be strange to those of us who didn't think uh, division was a, a major sin, that unity was, was a major, major Christian virtue, and just thought, well, some bad teaching or whatever, well, that matters, but if the teaching's not bad, if it divides, that's okay. Wrong. Actually, it would seem from what is said here, and the fact that Paul does not rebuke, he does not take apart false teaching, which he does elsewhere. He certainly does it in Galatians, which we've been studying through on Wednesday nights. He dismantles the false teaching of the false teachers. He does not do that here. It is possible that what they're dividing over are things that are um, perhaps good even. They're good things that should be talked about. They're issues that need to be addressed. But the way it is being done and how it is being used, namely to divide the body of Christ, is sin for Paul. It seems to be sin. And notice how he brings in baptism at the end. So notice, he didn't say, I'm of Aristotle, I'm of Socrates, I'm of Plato. So he's not talking about secular agency, though we believe secular philosophy was impinging on them. I'll talk about that in a moment. But the names used specifically are names associated with the Christian faith. Christian teachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and of course, Christ. These are, these are all Christian people, so that there's, there's no problem with the person, per se. There's no issue there. He doesn't attack the teaching, per se. So you go, well, Paul, what in the world do you have left to attack? And the issue is the partisanship, the division, the factions. That is the core issue. So anything, friends, anything that divides the body of Christ, that you make a condition for fellowship and say, if you're not with me on this, I'm not going to talk to you and I'm not going to listen to you and I can't have a conversation with you and I'll go to another church where people are exactly like me and none of them are like you. If you're doing that, listen. Even if you're right on the issue, you are wrong on the major issue, which is the unity of the body of Christ. We are not to divide the body of Christ. That cannot be our strategy. We cannot give up the value of the oneness of Christ's body. Notice that he brings in baptism at the end. This is, this is a Christian initiatory rite. It's in the Bible. We're commanded to do it. It's good. 
And yet a good thing was being used apparently, we're going to see this more in the next couple of verses, apparently baptism, a good thing, was being used to cause division and Paul writes against it. Friends, this means there, there's nothing you can tell me, like a news article clip somebody sends or this, see, we need to divide with brothers. and It's like, no, we need to come back to the gospel, remember who we are, and if other brothers and sisters on, on maybe a different uh, a position or opinion than you, they're dividing too and they're making this the most important thing in the world, we need to call them back to unity and repentance to the gospel because the gospel creates unity. So when there's disunity, it is because we are not being loyal to the gospel. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Again, how strange is it for Paul to speak of such a thing about water baptism? This is funny. Now, you could use this as a verse against those who believe in what they call baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is the idea that unless you're baptized in water, H2O, you cannot be saved or born again. Again, I'd say on broader biblical grounds, that is not true. I would push back. I agree with those who think water baptism, therefore, is not important. It's not meaningful. That God doesn't act through it, does not dispense grace through it. I think that he does. So we need to avoid an extreme ritualism on the one hand that, that confuses the reality of spirit baptism with water. Nor should we go to the other route where they deny the, the worth and value and efficacy of the practice of baptism, which, Chris, uh, which the Bible commands. But I think we also need to acknowledge here that the way Paul says this makes it very clear he does not believe H2O, water baptism, saves anybody. If he did, he would not say, I thank God I didn't save you. I thank God I didn't administer the thing that saves how Paul can't possibly say that. He doesn't mean that. What he's saying is as important as it is, since sinfulness has latched on to a good thing and used it as an occasion to divide the body of Christ, Paul is now in a position to say, I thank God I actually wasn't the agent of your baptism because now you'd be dragging me into it and using me and my name to, to ruin a good thing and divide the body of Christ. Now, Crispus and Gaius, we're pretty sure we know who both of these guys were. Uh, there is a ruler of a synagogue, so Jewish ruler of a synagogue, in Acts chapter 18 named Crispus. We believe this is probably the same Crispus. Gaius is mentioned in Romans 16, and he was one of the benefactors of Paul, who was well off financially, and therefore he opened up his very large home so that all the believers could get together. So those are probably the two people Paul is referring to. In verse 15, he says, lest anyone should say I had baptized in my own name. So now he's saying why he said, thank God I didn't do this good thing for you. The reason is because I know what you would do. When there's division in your heart, when there's contention, when sin is at work, sin doesn't just need bad things, friends. Sin can use good things to divide up people. That's the irony. 
Sometimes Christians only have their eye out for things that are obviously bad on the surface. And so if the thing is good, it becomes an excuse for them to do evil, to divide the church. There is no reason to divide the church, friends. It is wrong. We are not to divide the body of Christ. We are united in the gospel, united in Jesus, in the spirit, and we are not to be giving it up for anything, whether it's obviously a bad thing that needs to be flat out rejected, the Bible says so, it's clear, or even maybe a thing it's we're not sure, we're not sure what it is, or maybe it's very complicated or whatever, even if that's a good thing and it must be addressed, it cannot be allowed to divide the body of Christ. Verse 16, he says, Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Again, we, we know that baptism is important in the New Testament. It is a sign. As we've said in, in my tradition of Calvary Chapel, water baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. I think that's true at minimum, and I also want to say that I believe, again, God can move and act through it. It's not, we don't depend on the water, we don't believe in holy water, but we do believe God can act through whatever he chooses to do. So as we obey and are baptized, that somebody would experience the gift of the Holy Spirit at the same time and speak in tongues or whatever, that happens. It doesn't always happen. I'd say frequently it doesn't, but it can happen. So at minimum, we want to acknowledge the value of obedience. It's a simple step of obedience that any believer can take. If you're a new believer, you may not know. It's like the Bible's a big book. There's lots of things there. I'm confused. What do I need to do? What do I need to stop doing? And one of the things that's so beautiful about baptism is it's a simple first step. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, be baptized. And the idea too was, especially in the early church, Baptism was seen in connection with the church. The idea that you are, as, as you are confessing the Lord Jesus, as you're baptized, you now belong to the body of the Lord Jesus, the church. You belong to him. And one of the beautiful things about the water is, again, everyone, whether male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all can be baptized in the water. It speaks of the unity of the body of Christ, more unified than ancient Israel could be. In ancient Israel, the outward sign was circumcision, which by its very nature meant, well, only men can do that. So only half of the population can do it. And, and then again, there's special laws for non-Jews, Gentiles, and all that kind of a thing. In Christ, in the church, baptism is a beautiful thing because anyone can enter in on the same ground and we are united together as one in Christ. So don't understand Paul as belittling baptism. But what he is doing is carefully pushing back against ritualism that trusts not in God, but in elements, and also against the misuse of good things, where Christians take good things and use them as excuses or opportunities to divide the body of Christ. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. David Lowry says, brilliantly persuasive eloquence may win a person's mind, but not his heart. Whereas the unadorned words of the gospel though seemingly foolish by human standards, are made 
effective by the Spirit of God. So for friends, if you're in the world, this is the opposite. In the world, it is your speech. It's your flowery speech. It's your catchy slogans. It's your little jingle. It's it's the group think kind of a thing. Whatever it is, that's how the world captures people. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel can come forward with a lack of eloquence. It can just stumble out of your lips as you share the truth of who you know Jesus to be from the Bible and who you know Jesus to be in your own life and how he saved you from your sins. I don't care how bad it comes out and how you you butcher the English language or whatever it is. God can make your speech effective through the Spirit because ultimately it's a spiritual problem. People need spiritual understanding. The ultimate issue is the human heart, that it's got to be changed by the Spirit of God. And so we must remember, don't get lured away by people who speak well, by people who come up with clever-sounding arguments. Again, it's kind of interesting that The idea of catchy slogans, we have them today, and guess what? They had them in Paul's day. Slogans had a great way of uniting people while also pushing out critical thought. It's one of the things Paul was just pushing back against. Notice what Leon Morris says about this party, this factionalism. He says, whether the teaching was right or wrong amongst these group at Corinth, was not the main point for Paul. Either way, they had absorbed the spirit of partisanship, and it is this that bothers Paul. He does not attack the teaching of any of the parties, but the fact that there were parties. He does not exempt those who clung to his own name. The whole thing was wrong. He would have none of it. The use of party cries has always tended to deepen and perpetuate division. And Paul calls for their abandonment. To speak the same thing can be a first step to real unity, whereas catch cries promote division. So friends, we need to make sure that there is a unity to our message as Christians. This may mean some dialogue amongst us. What can we all say as believers? What can we come together and say the gospel says? And what can we all agree on the gospel says about this in the world and do so with biblical conviction and in a spirit of unity? It is important that we arrive at such a place. Lastly, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are pairing perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, friends, right now in this moment, I know that some of you are friends of mine have said, man, the world really needs Jesus. Commenting on the riots in the streets or or the, the hatred and vitriol between people. And I've seen people mock. Yeah, sure, that's just what people say who don't know what's going on and who are dumb and who can't do anything. We need to to start rioting. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to change this and, and control things with earthly power. And they mock the gospel. They mock it when we say the root issue of the problem is sin. It always has been. It always will be until Christ comes home to the human heart. And people mock that. And friends, I just want to let you know That's always been the case. 
Paul says right here, 2,000 years ago, the message of the cross is foolishness to those on the path to destruction. Another translation asks, those who are on the wide path that leads to destruction, thinking that's how they should live, and they're the wise ones for merrily marching on the way to destruction. Of course, they will say, the message of the cross is foolish. But Paul says, whenever the message of the cross is put forward and someone mocks it as foolish, it is because they are perishing. They are on the road to destruction. That is not a wise person. That is a foolish person. Those who mock the gospel are not wise. It is the cure for the antidote of sin. There is no other. So we must maintain our courage and conviction that only the gospel can ultimately heal. This is not to say that laws can't be changed or passed. They can. In many cases, they should. But let us make no mistake about what happens when we do that. We simply, at best, at best no guarantee, restrain sinful man from going as bad as he wants to go. That's it. Laws do not change human hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So though we are mocked, we put forward the gospel nevertheless because we who are being saved, we who were once on the road to destruction, we who once thought this is the most important thing in the world, that's the most important thing in the world, we were the same thing. Until Jesus had mercy and compassion on us sinners and revealed to us the way of eternal life. We should not marvel at all, friends, when we are mocked for saying that the gospel is the issue. Let me close with this quote by A.W. Tozer. I thought it was so important that sums up the two themes I've been talking about this morning. The centrality of the gospel and the unity of the church. A.W. Tozer said this, quote, One thing must be kept in mind. We, are Christ we Christians are Christians first and everything else after that. Our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are grateful for political freedom. We thank God for democracy as a way of life. But we never forget that we are sons of God and citizens of another city whose builder and maker is God. For this reason, we must not identify the gospel with any political system or make Christianity to be synonymous with any form of government, however noble. Christ stands alone, above and outside of every ideology devised by man. He does not join any of our parties or take sides with any of our great men, except as they may come over on his side and try to follow him in righteousness and true holiness. Then Christ is for them, but only as individuals, never as leaders of some political faction. The true Christian will be loyal to his country and obedient to those in authority, but he will never fall into the error of confusing his own national culture with Christianity. Christianity is bigger than any country, loftier than any civilization, and broader than any human ideology. End quote. Friends, I believe this is wise and biblical counsel from an old departed pastor. 
I believe that right now, step one for us as Christians is unite. And the only way we're going to do that, and by unite, I don't mean uniformity. Uniform That would mean on whatever people's opinions are about current events, you try to mush them and make them exactly the same. That's not going to happen. Our unity won't come there. We might change some minds or our minds might be changed, but that is not where unity comes in any case. It comes by reaffirming Jesus as the answer for the world. So some slogan, some movement that does not compromise the centrality of the gospel message while also faithfully living out the gospel message in the world to the best of our ability while acknowledging our unity won't be in the details of how we think that ought to be implemented, but rather in the one who calls us to try. And so, friends, I hope and pray that you will join me in working and seeking unity in the Christian church. That unity is in Jesus. I think that means for many Christians right now, they might have to take a break from social media. For some people, they need to step back from their activism or whatever they're doing, and they need to make sure that if they are dividing the body of Christ, if they are being a party to dividing the body of Christ, they now recognize they have more work to do. They need to take some of that time and effort that was being directed outwardly to God knows where and begin redirecting it towards the unity of the church. It is worth our time. It is a calling for our time. It is a demand of the gospel, a requirement of Christ, a spiritual reality. To deny it is to deny the gospel. And so that's something we need to do. That could be on an individual level. It could be between uh, leaders, pastors talking, or churches, uh, movements, movements that uh, are faithful to the gospel. They stand for Jesus. They stand for the resurrection. They stand for prayer. They stand for Christian unity. But then they also faithfully work together to address the social problems in our world and do so in a way where we recognize our unity won't always be in the exact way we do it and we don't have to, so long as we are unified and faithful in the gospel, that we can go out into the world and faithfully not be captured by alien philosophies of worldly men, but by the power of the gospel of God. Please join with me now in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just come before you now in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us to overflowing. Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts. If there is division in our hearts, if we are harboring hatred, bitterness, resentment, envy, <clears throat> wrath towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, may we have the grace to repent. Help us to see that as right as we think we are about a secondary issue that is not in the Bible, that cannot be used as an excuse, no matter how good, to divide the body of Christ. So, Lord, help us to recognize our allegiance in Jesus. Unite us together. Help us to remember that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Lord, as, as the world is striving for diversity, but it lacks unity, so it ends up in division. As the, as the world tries for unity... But it doesn't have the Lord, so it ends up in uniformity. Lord, I pray that we would all come to you, the triune God, 
who is one in three and three in one, where unity and diversity exist perfectly together in love from all eternity, I pray that we would be bound together in you and that you would use us as churches, as examples of the body of Christ, where we can be united and yet diverse, diverse and yet united, faithful witnesses to the world, not conformed to the mold of the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds according to your word. Lord, I pray for a blessing on my brothers and sisters. For those who are fearful, I pray that you would give them courage. For those who are angry, I pray that you would give them love for their enemies. Lord, I pray that you would use us to truly leave a mark on this world, that people would remember that we stood for Jesus Christ, and that we didn't just say that with our words, we did it with our actions. So Lord, we just pray for a blessing now on this body of believers, wherever they are. We pray that you would use them to begin this work of reunifying the body of Christ, healing the divisions, mending the nets, so that we can once again be a united witness for the Lord to the world that is dying in sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.